Welcome to PRN's Progressive Radio News Hour. I'm Steve Lindman. My guest today is Matthew Witt. Uh, Matt is a uh, full professor now, Matt, right? Yeah, yeah, full, full professor, professor for about a year. For about a year at Laverne University, and a very valued guest on this program, and a valued contributor to the book that I edited and contributed to myself on Ukraine, Flashpoint in Ukraine, How the U.S. Drive for Hegemony Risk World War III. Matt, Ukraine certainly is back in the news again, but the reports coming over the uh, major media uh, are certainly not uh, the kind of information uh, that was in uh, the book that you and I contributed to, and the type of information that people need to know to really understand what's going on. It's a very ugly situation going on there. I've been writing almost daily articles on it in recent days, Matt. Another one that I got out this morning, one yesterday, one the day before that. And Obama, the latest Obama, publicly admitting, you know, in diplomatic language, that he arranged the coup in in uh, in uh, Kiev in February of last year. Agreed, he did use the word coup. He helped negotiate a change of government, something to that effect. Well... <laughs> Code language. Yeah. He arranged the coup. Yeah, um, it's startling, and I, you know, for the good of I don't know, posterity, Stephen, we can <laughs> we can speculate on the tactics of hegemony and um, and empire. I, I in our times, probably in all times. I mean, it, I think what that what his what his announcement is indicative of is this constantly moving the bar uh, so that he he never has to be caught up short with um, with the truth uh, so if he says I, I arrange for a change of government then the the fact of the matter is settled and reframed as if a fair initiative by a head of state instead of what it actually was which was a crime against humanity and I, 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 it's just a matter of uh, point setting um, on the line, I think, of the discourse of empire. Uh, it's tactical. The the uh, sending of arm, lethal arms now um, is is justified uh, from the context, uh, from the perspective of uh, a prudent and wise head of state um, taking the next steps necessary. Um, and anyone who wants to challenge that now has been made to personalize their challenge to the prudence of a wise, forbearing head of state. I, I'm, this reminds me of, of um, Bill Clinton's tactics uh, when approached uh, then out, by then out of office, law, uh, uh, out of office after the 2001 9/11 incident when challengers would uh, would say when he was on his speaking circuit or doing stumping for whatever um, would challenge the official story he would viciously attack them and more than one occasion i recall seeing his um, his tactics were to denounce um, the character of the individual uh, daring to ask an, an impudent question like how do buildings fall at the speed of gravity um, without having been imploded. And he attacked uh, people with uh, saying, he, uh, he begins the same way, his face turns red and he says, how dare you, how dare you, shame on you, shame on you. Now Obama isn't so crude as that, but Obama is a, is a very studied in his, in his lying. He's a very studious liar. And I guess uh, most head of states have to learn that skill at some point. But uh, as with your concerns with Ukraine, anyone with one eye open can see that this is uh, the Vietnamization of Ukraine. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I agree that uh, Obama can put a complete sentence together. He can make a convincing case for the biggest lie you can imagine, as opposed to George Bush, who couldn't complete a sentence. Uh, he really sounded like a boob. Just, just a, a good old boy is, is the only, only, only way that uh, you described him and the, and, the, and the damage control after some of the blunders that came out of his mouth. Obama is different. <laughs> Those were the good old days. Go ahead, man. <laughs> Those were the good old days. <laughs> the good old days, indeed, indeed. 
Uh, Obama indeed is a serial liar. Uh, he's a, he's a, a, I, I hate to give him credit for anything. He's a decent speaker. He reads his lines well. Let's put it that way. Uh, Reagan yeah. was, a, was, was a decent speaker too. He, Reagan was an actor. Reagan came out of Hollywood, and I remember people making comments that uh, he knew his mark. I guess when you go on camera, there's a spot you have to stand on. I've never been on camera making a film, so I don't know what they do exactly. But 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 he he knew his he knew his mark. He would get himself positioned. He would read his lines, and he could do it because he was an actor. Well, Obama isn't isn't a Hollywood actor, but he operates the same way. So he reads his lines off the teleprompter. Maybe ad libs a little bit here or there. Yep. Does a, a job convincing enough to feel to, to fool most of the people most of the time, and it really right. to me is disgusting, Matt, that after six absolutely atrocious years with force-fed austerity at home, great impoverishment increasing all the time, a Main Street depression ongoing, people suffering so much, good jobs disappearing, rotten ones people wouldn't take a few decades ago, and, and, and permanent wars raging abroad with bankers making more money than ever, along with the raw profiteers, and Obama still has a, an approval rating around 40%. I don't know how anybody above maybe the top 10 or 15% profiting from them would support them, but that's the way things are in the polls, and it shows how 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 out of touch most Americans are, and why these people are, are able to get away with with the greatest crimes without practically nobody laying a glove on them. It's wonderfully put, and it, I I hear the title of your next book. Um, oh. It's not it's not the it's not the leaders that it's you spin it very well. It's not the leaders who are out of touch. It's the people who are out of touch. And the standard narrative from, uh, that gets dredged up in times of, of leadership crisis is, oh, the leadership's out of touch. Congress is out of touch. They're too far from the people. They're too this, too that. That's, that's, you spin it brilliantly. It, 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 the leaders are not at all out of touch. The leaders are the only ones in touch. They know exactly what they're doing, Matt, and they've been doing the same thing successfully for years. Along with the major media, uh, the term that I use over and over again is calling them the scoundrel media. And the most important ones uh, concern me the most, of course, television, because that's where most Americans get their so-called news and information from, whether it's Fox or CNN. I mean, they're abominable operations. I turn them on very briefly every now and then just to see where they're going. But I just gag at the kind of garbage that they put over the airways, and as far as print media goes, uh, the one that I pick on constantly the most is the New York Times, an absolute sham operation I mean, yes, with yes, worldwide yes. reach, and people think if it comes up from the New York Times, it has to be authentic, and the New York Times is nothing but, 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 a, but a quasi-official voice for wealth, power, and, 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 and privilege, yes. and that's what the New York yes. Times does. Uh, I wrote, uh, th- th- we'll get, we can talk a little bit about this later in the program, Matt, uh, president of, uh, of Venezuela, uh, Nicolas Maduro, accused Joe Biden of orchestrating a coup against him, uh, including comments from Biden saying the government in Venezuela will soon fall, and Maduro was absolutely furious, which he absolutely should be, uh, going on television, I believe, or making a, a public speech. I'm not certain if it was on television or not, but imploring Venezuelan people to stand up against this hegemon from the north, and he wanted to overthrow the Venezuelan government, and of course reinstituting the kind of stuff that existed before Chavez, uh, you know, neo- neoliberal hell is what it amounts. Turning Venezuela into Ukraine is the way I, I, I phrased it in an article that I'm working on, and I'll get I'll get out later today. But but uh, uh, Americans have no idea what's going on there. I probably have no idea what's going on in Ukraine except the garbage they get on television, and it's exactly the opposite of the truth. When I, when I talk to people briefly about Ukraine, I don't think they want to hear from me on it, Matt. But I say to them very briefly. I just want to let you know, and, and I research this all the time, that Vladimir Putin is the good guy, and Barack Obama is the bad guy. And when I say that, their eyes glazed over. They don't know what I'm talking about. I, it's, it's, uh, I think, uh, Stephen, it's what is and has always been the um, fascism of everyday life. I, I Freud wrote about the psychopathology of everyday life, and I, I, I don't mean to malappropriate his his thinking there, but there's components of that. But in the context of our 
you know, the Morwellian era that we live in now, um, where war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, that in that context, I think it's the fascism of everyday life. And the people, for that matter, are in a frenzy state of witch hunting. Under those conditions to confront people with banal truths, as with the speed of gravity and other very, very settled laws of physics, is to, is to elicit from them, you know, that the truth speaker is a witch, must be a witch, must be banished or otherwise scorned. Those tactics are, are horrifying to watch on the one hand, you know, as we become a fascist state. But it is the, it's the fascism of everyday life that the melodramas, the relentless melodramas about the Holocaust that come out of Hollywood refuse ever to examine. It would require a gestalt shift in narrative where the focus is not on the after-the-fact of brutality of this or that SS stormtrooper, but the banality of the horrifying banality of a society succumbing uh, to the to the diktat of brute force and bullying. I think even 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 more insidious for a country that can summon the mythos of so-called democratic origins, different for Germany. Germany never was a democracy. It didn't have that claim to um, unsullied origins and tribute to the people that, that the United States has. It never had tribunes for the people, except its poets and writers and so on. And, and But we had the tribunes were our founders themselves. And so, for instance, with the propagandizing that's going on in the case of this film, American Sniper, you have the, the spectacle of of the real made more real. You know, uh, Clint Eastwood um, didn't choose a um, so-called biography um, by accident. Clint Eastwood could have told a story knit from the yarn of truer than, uh, you know, truer than true. That's fiction at its best. Instead, he fictionalized biography. And from you know, this is this is often done, of course. This is done all the time in in film storytelling to fictionalize biography uh, with more or less fidelity to facts. But we have an interesting juxtaposition in the case of the film Selma, which came out right about the same time a little bit before American Sniper, a little bit after, I can't recall now, roughly concurrent timing. And I think Selma slightly before, and American Sniper then ran away with Oscar nominations. It ran away with Oscar buzz. Of all places, you get Jon Stewart on The Daily Show bringing Sienna Miller on and fawning all over this story uncritically as if the film was truer than true, when what we have in his own words of the character and author is is psychopathic. Uh, He wrote in his own memoir that he couldn't, uh, uh, I can't say it on radio, right? He couldn't give a bleep about the Iraqis. He wrote that the best thing that ever happened to him was going to war and uh, going to the Iraq War. Uh, there's nothing sympathetic in this character at all. 
he's a grotesque caricature of America's fall from grace. Oh, he really is a licensed hitman. I believe he said things like uh, uh, he loved what he did and and killed. He loved uh, what he did. He killed well over a hundred Iraqis. He killed. He loved what he did and gets honored as a hero. Uh, I don't. I don't know the full storyline of the movie or, the, or his book. I guess his book. Uh, did, did he, he? He wasn't invited to the White House, was he? I don't. I. I haven't followed him. If and the film I, wins an Academy to... Award, he he probably will be met. A high, I mean, well, it, well, it, well, it would be fitting, Matt. You know, you know, Obama, a, ma- a mass, a mass serial killer on a global scale, with with, with one of his, uh, one of his, uh, his, his, uh, uh, what do you, I don't know what to call him, one of his hitmen uh, operating well, in Iraq. Well, Bush's hitmen. Well, one of the reasons, uh, just a slight correction, uh, the the uh, what's his name, Chris something. Um, I'll get it. He's dead. Uh, he was killed. This is this is a high irony. Oh, the character, um, and, the character and, in the story is 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 dead now. I didn't know that. No, he's dead. He was killed um, at a firing range. Um, uh, oh. He was killed at a firing range along with along with a compatriot. The two of them um, bringing a, um, a a a fellow uh, uh, veteran uh, to the firing range as a as a form of 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 you know sort of um as a as a, you know sort of an an invention by of by four veterans uh, going to a firing range to deal with post traumatic stress disorder and again i haven't read i haven't read the book i haven't seen the film i'm i'm full disclosure i'm i'm going off of what i've read on uh, media accounts and quotations um of uh the, uh, Chris Snyder was that his name? Of the author himself, um, it, he was killed at, at point blank um, by this um, uh, by a fellow veteran. Uh, and th- this, I think, I this I take to have been the part of the inspiration uh, for Clint Eastwood uh, uh, bringing this story to film. Um, now there's there's all sorts of uh, Chris Kyle is, is the real man's name, um, and yeah he was he was he was killed he died in um, uh, he died not that long ago. Um, irony of ironies. I mean there's a there's something to examine. You mean right? deliberately deliberate, deliberately killed by another soldier? He was deliberately killed by another soldier, and it's not, it's not, uh, you know, the way this has been, the way this has been accounted for in the press is this other soldier snapped. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, the motive, the motive was not um, uh, revenge, the motive wasn't hate, the motive wasn't anything of this sort, but again, uh, we, we have to be careful. Uh, uh, Stephen, I, I do not know. Uh, I have not not done more than sort of gleaned uh, um, online online reports. Uh, so, but it, it, you know, of, of all of all ironic ways to die, a sniper is killed at point blank by an individual with post traumatic stress in a war that the sniper um, uh, loved. That's that's irony. That really is irony. Um, I I don't I don't know the story either. And the only th- the only things I do, well, I know a lot about the Iraq War in general, about the individuals involved in it. That's another story entirely. But I do know that that command orders that came down from the top were uh, to kill all Iraqi aged uh, uh, men uh, on site. These were some of the orders that came down. So they come down from the highest ranks of the Pentagon, maybe from the White House, or maybe DOD, maybe even the White House, kill all military-aged Iraqi men on site. Well, what's, what's a military-aged man? I guess that's at the discretion of a soldier running into an Iraqi male. And if this was the order in Iraq, it's the same order in Afghanistan, the same order where American forces show up, whether they show up on the ground, whether it's drone pilots targeting whoever they target, killing mostly civilians, whether it's pilots from 30,000 feet, you know, just, 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 just fire away and kill anybody you want. And these, these are the 
standing orders, and this is the way America fights wars and then has the nerve to call them liberating wars. I mean, they're brutal aggression for world dominance, and I've certainly written an awful lot about that, and it's going on in Ukraine right now. Either direct wars, Matt, or proxy wars. Ukraine is one of America's proxy wars. Yeah, no question. Uh, yeah. One of the things about Ukraine, which really amazes me, and uh, I hope it keeps up, Matt, but the rebel forces in the Donbass area, this is southeastern Ukraine, mostly in the uh, cities, or the greater, they call them the, the, the uh, Donetsk. Donetsk is a city, and then they refer to the Donetsk Oblast, which I guess is a greater area, like greater New York or greater Chicago, greater Los Angeles, a bigger area with a larger population. So the Donetsk and the Lugansk areas, and also some areas branching out from them, the rebel forces have managed to get hold of arms, mainly, I believe, from what I understand, is because the Ukrainian forces, the constricted military, wants no part of waging a war. These people want to be home. They're being used as cannon fodder. A lot of them are just leaving their weapons, either trying to go home or, or just, just dispersing into the local area, some of them joining with the rebels, others trying to cross the border and enter Russia. And I forget whether this was a monthly period. I think it was the month of January. Something like 20,000 Ukrainians crossed the border seeking refuge in Russia in January. And, and, and uh, uh, Kiev is undergoing multiple mobilizations because they're losing their forces. They have volunteers, these extremists, that uh, willingly want to join the fight to do what they do. I guess fascists do what they do. But the great majority, I think, of what Ukraine needs for a military is, is just ordinary people. They need to conscript. And, and, and great numbers, thousands, are not showing up. There are, there are soldiers in the military that are deserting. So these people don't want to fight. The ones, a lot of them on the front lines, are just leaving their weapons and leaving. And in the article I put out this morning, somebody from on-site quoted to the effect that the road from Donetsk heading back to Ukraine is just strewn with weapons and tanks and artillery. I mean, the, the Ukrainian soldiers just abandoning this stuff and just wanting to get away from the conflict area. So the rebels are able to get these weapons. They have to have somebody training them on how to use them. But this is the way they're getting their weapons. I don't know of anything that Russia is supplying them with. Maybe Russian volunteers are coming over with some weapons. But there is nothing official from Moscow supplying these people. But there's plenty official and unofficial, covert. From the beginning of the conflict, Matt, I strongly believe there were some documents that I wrote about, I think over a year ago now, uh, showing that America plus EU countries have been covertly arming the Ukrainian forces, listing some of the weapons that were being sent, some of them heavy weapons. I didn't see tanks, but rocket launches and anti-tank weapons and all kinds of other weapons, supplying them to Ukraine. And when you get a State Department spokesperson or John Kerry or Obama saying, we are not supplying any weapons, they're lying. They've been supplying weapons since the conflict broke out. And I believe America orchestrated everything. I think America is taking more charge now than ever before because Ukraine's military has been routed over and over again. There's one town, I need to have the name in front of me to pronounce it, so I won't even try. It begins with a D. Uh, something like seven or 8,000 Ukrainian troops are surrounded by rebel forces, and the order came from the prime minister of Donetsk, either surrender or die, but a promise that if you surrender, we will let you go home peacefully. We will not attack you. Well, this saga is still ongoing, so I'm watching this on a daily basis. I believe the prime minister doesn't want to kill people who aren't fighting him but absolutely will if, if there is uh, combat coming from the other side but all of this is coming from this fascist regime i think washington is orchestrating everything there have been u.s forces um, or u.s recruited mercenaries on the ground in this donbass area speaking in plain english like get off my back or get 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 something to that effect 
get off my back, get out of my sight. I mean, people speaking like Americans, not Ukrainians, no accent at all. And uh, and there were U.S. forces uh, either in uh, Kiev, oh, U.S. special forces are in Kiev, along with CIA and FBI operatives. And I think America is increasingly entirely taking over the war. And I think greater numbers of U.S. forces will be involved, Pat, maybe with U.S. forces on the ground. The same thing that's going on in Iraq with so many thousands of U.S. special forces, so-called advisors and trainers, they're combat-ready special forces. These, these people are trained killers, and I think they're directly involved in combat. And Chuck Hagel, just a day or so ago, uh, so he's on his way out, but suggested it looks like more U.S. combat troops are going to be sent, and I think the same scenario will play out in Ukraine, with America taking a direct role with U.S. combat forces, making a proxy war, a U.S. war, and the target really is Russia. So we have a very dangerous situation where the more we go to war with Ukraine, proxy or direct, the greater the possibility it could turn into a U.S. versus Russia war. And this is what I hop on all the time, Matt. I, uh, as well you should, uh, it, it, the, the, the specter of a hot war is, 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 is very clear and vivid. And... Um, I, you know, I'm thinking now, um, uh, Stephen, of the announcement very recently by the Indian Prime Minister um, that it seems so um, out of step with the narrative uh, otherwise of the BRIC nations um, finally um, you know, rising to world financial prominence. Uh, when the Prime Minister announced very recently, suddenly it would seem, that uh, India had brokered a deal with U.S. Um, uh, US um, energy companies like General Electric, uh, indemnifying them against any um, catastrophe uh, for nuclear uh, energy development. I, I, I had to... I had to I had to listen twice to that, the Prime Minister's um, address. You know, it, it, this comes on the heels of the announcement of the formation of essentially a World Bank. I, I forget now the, the, the title given it um, by uh, China. Um, but a, a, a essential, essentially a, 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 the beginnings of a complete breach uh, from uh, the, the uh, World Bank IMF axis of world financial control. And so what we get then is a disruption of that narrative with the U.S.-Indian arrangement that our energy giants will be granted indemnity for any risks or any actual accidents that may occur, I, I, it struck me as ominous on a couple of fronts. One is is that the best we have to offer the world at this point is a strong-arm deal that, that gives them virtually nothing of what they already have. India is perfectly capable of, of developing its own nuclear energy, uh, from what I know. First of all, secondly, the ominous um, message that our um, utility giants, energy giants like GE, will be indemnified for any accidental, you know, um, leakage or much less catastrophe. I mean, this particularly given what was the culpability of Union Carbide uh, in Bhopal. This is spectacular. It's just absolutely spectacular to me. And it seems to me a warning and messaging. You know, when should we set the clock for when there will be a ominous catastrophe in India? Another one. A, nu a, nuclear a, a, a nuclear one this time. And this is a, this is a, and the prime minister himself said, 
we're very happy to make this deal with the United States as if that was a plausible, as if there was anything plausible to, to, to the, uh, to the Sanguine Proclamation. It, it, it was ominous to me. I, I, and it's as if also to say this is the best we have to offer uh, this rising block of trade and financial uh, world dominance. The best we have to offer is a threat and a shakedown. The nuclear and, companies and, have the same deal in America, Matt, as far as I understand, indemnified against any any problems, so that if, uh, if there's a nuclear meltdown with uh, billions of dollars in cost, let alone uh, the harm to human health, but uh, just the uh, financial expense, uh, the taxpayers will pick up the tab. I think that's the deal that, uh, that nuclear companies uh, have in America. I guess the, the nuclear operators and companies like GE uh, that build uh, the reactors... Well, of course, we had we had Love Canal, and we had Three Mile Island as catastrophes. Um, uh, but we didn't have anything on the scale of Bhopal. Nothing like that, or anything on the scale of Chernobyl. To, to the extent we know, Three Mile Island may well be a Chernobyl-like um, catastrophe. I'm not. I I don't know. Um, for that matter, the Hanford um, Nuclear Waste Depot is probably probably rivals Chernobyl uh, for uh, the long-term consequences of irradiating uh, that territory and and ultimately uh, seeping into the Columbia uh, the Columbia River Basin. Uh, but it, that that you know, given it's not out of the the collective memory of the Indian nation, what happened in Bhopal, that it, that that the country's prime minister could announce indemnity for um, American energy companies blows my mind. <laughs> Perhaps I, I this is a major piece here that. I'm, uh, I'm naive. <laughs> oh no 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 not at all. But by, by the way, can, can I just mention something that uh, I just I just got got, got a little bolden of, and uh, I know nothing more than it's, it's really just just kind of a brief a brief comment without any uh, explanation. But I included this in an article on Ukraine. Changing changing subjects, Matt. Uh, an article I wrote on Ukraine uh, today, where there's a lot of disillusionment about the, about the extreme hardliners in Ukraine, about the way the war is going. In, in, in Donbass, in the southeast of the country, uh, to the extent that maybe the long knives are out for, for this stooge of a president, Poroshenko, Petro Poroshenko, a billionaire, uh, lots of billionaires in Ukraine. Well, <laughs> Too many billionaires in Ukraine. Let me put it that way, and uh, and, yeah. and 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 the bulletin is that uh, it, it's a video with just a few comments. Hundreds try to storm Ukraine, Ukrainian president's office in Kiev, but security forces foiled them for the time being. But what was in my article was uh, was the possibility that maybe the long knives are out to get him, to overthrow him, to replace him, yeah. and maybe even kill him. To put, an, to put a real hardliner in charge to do everything they want to do more overtly than this guy who's more a businessman than, 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 than a head of state, even though he's a former politician. He was in the parliament at one time, so he certainly is not an inexperienced politician, but he's mainly a businessman, and uh, they're concerned about the fact of things like uh, he's got business interests in Russia, so he doesn't want to get Russia too mad at him. He can say things, but it's what he does that really matters. He can make horrible comments about Putin and Russia, but his policies are what matters. So if he's got business interests in Russia, he doesn't want to rattle things too much because Russia could just confiscate his business interests. So the, so the hardliners are very concerned about that and some other things. Going, I think mainly not, win, not winning the war, not going all out to win the war. Well, how do you win the war when the, when the people of Ukraine don't want to fight it? But I'm watching this. It was in my article this morning, and I'm watching about the possibility that there could be a coup, and, and, and the person I mentioned who who is who, who who his translator called about as in touch on what's going on in Ukraine as anybody, and this guy who made who made who suggested the possibility, dare I say, a prediction. He said, "Watch the 15th of, of February, which is coming up in less than two weeks now. There'll be a national assembly meeting in uh, Kiev, 
and he said, uh, watch the meeting, and maybe at 8 o'clock in the evening, there'll be some kind of an announcement of a putsch dispo- uh, deposing uh, Poroshenko and putting somebody else in. Well, I sure will be watching to see what happens, Matt. Um, intriguing, Stephen, yeah, it's intriguing. Um, but I, you, one more comment. I wonder, I mean, here America arranged the first coup. Well, on the one hand, is are America's dirty hands behind arranging a second coup? If not, can they accept the illegitimacy a second time of a Ukrainian leader? Two coups in, 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 in a time frame of roughly one year. Can America accept the legitimacy of the second one? Well, I don't know. I guess given Washington's track record, it can do anything it wants. Uh, you've got to come up with some kind of a reason why a president who America praised for his democratic election is suddenly ousted and some other people take his place. So I'll be watching this very carefully to see what happens and, and how it's spun by uh, Washington and in the media. If this actually happens, I would imagine that there are people in Ukraine not too happy with the leadership because of the war going on, the war that's going bad in the southeast. So, uh, again, we'll have to watch it, Matt, and see what happens. But Ukraine is economically bankrupt. It's, it's, it's lost the war. I don't know how it can win it unless America gets directly involved with U.S. troops or maybe planes bombing the southeast. Uh, I, I don't know how they can yeah. win the war any other way. They, they don't have the will. They don't have the resources. They don't have the people who want to fight it. So how do you win a war when, when the people you need to go out and be the cannon fodder uh, uh, deserve <laughs> not showing up for conscription, crossing the border into Russia, joining the rebel forces. Boy, talk, talk about talk about a, a script for failure. That is it. I, you know, I think as so often is the case, our merchants of mendacity understand that nothing succeeds like failure. But, you know, that narrative, the failed state, collapsed leadership, you know, um, fits the shock doctrine pretty well. Uh, and we, we, we into that vacuum uh, order and sort of comprehensive civil society um, into that vacuum can rush an extraordinary amount of opportunity. So I, uh, I, you know, I think it's it's uh, watch that space. It's a very unstable, very unstable and uh, volatile file in the in the the grand chessboard of Europe at this time. Oh, it really is. And Ukraine is important. It's in Europe's heartland. It's a big country. She has a 1,500-kilometer land and sea yeah. border with Russia. And uh, I've said many times, Matt, that the real issue for Washington is not Ukraine so much as using Ukraine as a dagger against Russia, the idea of either getting Ukraine into NATO, but whether or not it's a NATO, America wants to use Ukraine as, as though it's a NATO member with U.S. forces on the ground in Ukraine. Ukraine involved with its military, training it, uh, maybe fighting uh, amongst its ranks, uh, doing anything Washington wants to do. And the real target is Russia, and the real goal is regime change in Russia, and Russia knows it. But what this could explode into is a direct confrontation, which by any other term is a war, which could very easily be a nuclear war, and we're into a very, very serious situation where literally the survival of humanity is up for grabs. In the meantime, it, 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 uh, Stephen, the, the, the opportunity to exploit the narrative of, of crisis, disruption, terrorism, you know, that, that um, the syntax of that um, narrative, we see evident in, for instance, um, the mercurial William Bratton comparing Black Lives Matter protests to the incidents in Paris and Mumbai and suggesting that, for that matter, um, the, uh, uh, those, those incidents share a pedigree in common, uh, warranting, uh, for that matter, um, what, and what 
uh, Bill Bratton, again, now returned to New York, uh, says uh, is the basis for his announcement of a 350-officer strategic response group unit. Armed, I'm reading now from the Internet, armed with machine guns and other special weaponry. Uh, a quote, designed for dealing with events like our recent protests or incidents like Mumbai or what just happened in Paris. So this seamless correspondence in very vague terms, our recent protests, obviously a connection uh, to Black Lives Matter in the first place, but in the minds of the fascist predilections of everyday life in America, that would extend to the Occupy protesters. You know, anyone daring to step out of line uh, is is increasingly narratively cast, inflected into the into the um, into the imaginary order of terrorism. And you have, in, you know, uh, echoing that, of course, is the anti Shazira. Uh, propaganda uh, where Greece is being framed as a, quote, emerging hub for terrorists under the most dubious claims of fact and evidence. All of these are, you know, the whispering campaigns of of this uh, Morwellian apparatus we have well in place now. And, you know, duly abetted by an obliging uh, mainstream press that's more than happy to give credence to anonymous sources because, you know, they're embedded and they can't tell us their name, but they have some privileged information that everyone needs to know. Um, I have, um, in the classes I teach, you know, how these matters, uh, come up as, for instance, I I asked my students recently what they thought of the Occupy protesters. And in the classroom, as you and I have spoken before, I have police officers often. Perhaps they've been placed there at this point. I'm not sure, to tell you the truth. And um, the chilling effect they too often have on the discussion is palpable. And so I'm cast in the I'm cast in the mold of, you know, the dubious, um, the dubious radical, just for raising, you know, the petulant questions. Like, for instance, uh, evidence of agent provocateur attacks by police on peaceful protests. That is quick to elicit the ire of police officers, let me tell you. Um, and I, I, getting back to the Occupy protests, I said, well, who are these people? And this, I, I, am, I am not exaggerating. The police officer in the class spoke up saying, well, these, these people, what they didn't understand was when I spoke about the allegations, extensive allegations of the numerous allegations by Occupy um, Occupy encampments that they were being dumped upon by police in the middle of the night with homeless vans of homeless people rolled up and let, let upon the Occupy camps. And I said, you know, what, you know, what you began to have with Occupy was the social disorder because you had decompensating mentally ill homeless people, many of whom are uh, many of whom are almost certainly veterans of our wars, uh, who 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 are in you know are in a you know, sort of disabled state and a very disruptive state. Now this also would prevent this also would present the opportunity for agent provocateurs under another persona to come into these camps, be extremely disruptive, disrupt the meetings, uh, disrupt processes of all sorts that these camps were trying to set up. And I, so I bring this up and, and the officer, I said, look, I, I wasn't there, but I've, 
you know, I've, I'm pretty well informed and and reasonably critical of hearsay evidence. And the officer said this was his response. He said, well, you have to understand, this I often get from police officers, this preface with, you have to understand. You have to understand that these uh, uh, protesters were on the turf of homeless people. And they didn't, you know, they, they didn't appreciate the circumstances that homeless people uh, must deal with uh, every day, not just the few days that the occupiers wanted to camp out. And I said to the officer, because he sounded so descript, so descript that was so riddled with, with incoherence, I said, so let me see if I get this straight. The whole point of Occupy was to disrupt the lives of homeless people. Is that what you're saying? And the, la- the class kind of laughed. And he said, no, 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 yeah, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying they, they weren't, I'm saying that the occupiers didn't, you know, they just weren't, they, they weren't paying attention to the circumstances that they sort of could come and go by. And I said, so, so again, let me get this clear. The occupiers made the point of finding where homeless people uh, are uh, sort of um, you know, hanging out, um, uh, surviving. They picked those places in particular uh, for their occupied camps um, uh, because they were they thought well the homeless people could teach them something, you know. And again, it's it's and this is how blunt and the rest of the class. No one responded to the obvious inanity of the claim. No, nobody. They just, they laughed nervously at, at my, at my, um, my counterpoint. And I, I, it's, it's just sort of, there it is. You know, you get that in the classroom and it's, it's, uh, it's stultifying and it's kind of ominous. You, you get you get murmured. I'll have students will come up to me after a class and say, "Yeah, um, you know, Matt. Um, look, everyone knows this is what's going on. Uh, everyone knows about the militarization. In fact, I had students come up, hardly radicals. Okay, by far not radical students, <laughs> come up to me the other day. Uh, two two of them, and one said, you know, um, his friends in a local police department have told him, look." I'm not, if they tell me to come and take your guns, I'm going to quit the department. I'm going to quit the force because no one is going to make me uh, turn on the American people. And this, I, I, this was startling to me for how candid it was, right? And, and I, it's hard to tell how much of this is sort of, you know, proto-fascist, right-wing militia mindset on the one hand, you know, and uh, or on the other hand, to what extent it is a a very informed wariness of the rise of a military state uh, by otherwise look I mean I my so many of my students are sort of yeoman patriotic American civil servants you know they're they're not they're not terribly informed they tend to be quite conservative um, some of them are 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 absolutely not uh, but and and quite informed, uh, but the, the, the um, reluctance to engage the space of the classroom with, with a you know, sort of vigorous exchange is so ominous. It's so ominous. You know? I, didn't, I was a kid in the 60s, so I don't, I don't remember what, what, was the, what was the climate on campuses, uh, the sort of discursive climate on campuses, and how willing... Uh, students were to challenge in a classroom uh, the bullshit, uh, if I may say that on air. Um, I know that there was extra, you know, a tremendous amount of extracurricular activity, but in the classroom itself, you know, to 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 have um, to have a disagreement. I, I, but I, I'll tell you what I see now is ominously stultified. Uh, discursive environment where I am the scapegoat. That's what I am. On a, on a very, very, very good day, 
an exhausting day. I am a mediator. But on most days, I'm a scapegoat. This is what worries me, Matt, the fact that uh, the, the U.S. public, uh, and you would think students would be a little bit more in touch than the average uh, American, but uh, you can see it in the general attitudes. When polls are taken, it shows that Americans are anti-war, but they're not doing anything about it. So we've got wars raging. I mean, Americans have no idea how many wars are being waged in their name, direct and proxy wars, and the fact that U.S. special forces uh, train killers experts in the fine art of killing are operating in well over 100 countries. In the last three years, I, I had in one of my articles operated in something like 130-odd countries. There are only 190-odd countries in the world. So o over two-thirds of the countries in the world, American U.S. Special Forces are operating in, and not as goodwill ambassadors, you know, subversion, things like that. And, and, and the U.S. public is mindless of this stuff going on, Millions of dollars being spent on militarism and wars and U.S. bases around the world and mass slaughter continuing to go on, and people don't have a clue. And if you bring this stuff up with them, they look at you like you don't know what you're talking about. So I can imagine what goes on in your classroom, Matt. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what happened in classrooms during the Vietnam area. Of course, outside of the classroom, there was tremendous anti-war fervor. Whether this went on in the classrooms or not, I don't know. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, it's, you know, I mean, I, for that matter, I, 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 you know, professors need to be much better trained in the rhetorical arts of, counter-hegemonic discourse. I, 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 it, it really is, there ought to be uh, workshops explicitly devoted to how to maintain, um, you know, judicious um, uh, in, uh, learning environments with, um, with intellectual integrity because uh, we are poised to be um, overrun uh, by a script for propaganda that one way or the other we're complicit with analogously to your point, so well taken, that Americans have no idea to what extent de facto we endorse uh, wars, brutality, and hell upon so many parts of the world. No idea. We're on Facebook issuing likes for toddler pictures and cat videos. And meanwhile, I, you know, our complicity pure and simple, in crimes against humanity are staggering. Staggering. Matt, absolutely. I, I, with the time we have left, I, I want to just spend a few minutes on what's been going on in Venezuela, and uh, I don't think there's anything disruptive overtly that's happening at the moment, but last year for several months uh, there was U.S. orchestrated violence against the Maduro government. There's an economic war going on complicit with, with businesses that are hoarding goods so that uh, supermarket shelves are empty because the uh, companies and the distributors are hoarding the stuff. So uh, uh, people can't get what they want. Prices are going up. Inflation is very high. Uh, serious economic trouble. Venezuela, uh, of course, you get the low price yeah. of oil going on at the same time. And, uh, and yes, Joe yes, Biden yes. making a statement, quote, uh, the government of Venezuela is, is soon to fall. I mean, this would enrage anybody. It should enrage all yes, yes. of Venezuelan people. But I don't think one in 500 Americans has any information on this at all. And, and most of it is new information for me. But I have an article that's pretty close to being done. I'll get it out later today. It will be on my blog. It will be top featured on my blog with, with U.S. media, uh, the New York Times, my main punching bag, uh, vilifying the uh, uh, Venezuelan government, uh, calling uh, uh, Hugo Chavez a despot a despot, uh, another, uh, a, uh, an editorial board member of the Washington Post calling him a Cordillo, uh, calling uh, a Maduro, Nicolas Maduro, uh, inept, uh, unable, unable to govern, referring to him as an ex-bus driver. The guy, maybe when he was much younger, drove a bus. He was a union leader. He was a legislator. He was a national speaker, a national assembly speaker, the John Bonya of Venezuela, except in, in the best sense of the 
word, not the worst. He was vice president of Venezuela, and now he's the president, and he's referred to by the New York Times and the Washington Post as a former bus driver. Talk about a degradation, vilification, and then the New York Times calling him and calling Chavez, and by implication him, a despot. My God, Venezuelan has the most model democracy in the hemisphere, and America has the absolute worst. No democracy whatsoever, with money power running everything. And even Jimmy Carter said Venezuela has, has the best electoral process in the world. In the world, not the hemisphere, in the world. Jimmy Carter, and I've written his exact quote. I'm using his words and my words, but that was his exact quote. And he's right, the exact opposite of what goes on in America. But the New York Times, you know, all the news that's fit to print, my foot, uh, railing against the only democracy that really is worth, well, the democracy that's best uh, uh, deserving of, of the term and, and its justification as being a democracy where America is not, raving against this government, against Maduro, supporting the coup that took place in 2002 that ousted Chavez for two days, and, and public pressure brought him back, and this thing could be happening again. There could be a coup that is being orchestrated in progress right now, Matt, as we speak. So I'll get out my article, and if there's any breaking news, I certainly will follow up with that. But this article will be on my blog, Steve Lendman blog. I urge listeners to read it, see what's going on, with Washington's dirty hands behind all of this again, whether it's orchestrating a coup in Venezuela, what's going on in Ukraine, the war in Iraq, Obama's war in Syria, droning Yemen, fighting a war, proxy war in Somalia, U.S. Special Forces, and all these dozens of countries destabilizing them. That's what U.S. policy is, plus police state laws at home beating up on anybody who's against the agenda, including the press, with people being put in prison for, for, for exposing government wrongdoing. My God, and the American public is absolutely mindless about most, if not all, of it, Matt. It's, it's, I know we're running uh, out of time, but I, you're, we come full circle with Venezuela. Uh, uh, Bill Bratton was in Venezuela on the eve of the failed 2002 coup attempt. Uh, he was there under contract with uh, the Bratton Group uh, to promote his uh, theories of computer-oriented police intelligence gathering, the CompStat um, package. Uh, and he is uh, the the contract was uh, initiated by Ivan Simonovis, um, who at that time was police commissioner in Caracas. Uh, and Bratton worked with Simonovis uh, very closely. Simonovis was later found um, uh, uh, among three uh, commissioners to be uh, central to the coup attempt uh, against Chavez. Oh, I can believe that, and there were some high-level people against Chavez, but the great majority of Venezuelans supported him and just stormed the streets uh, in support of him. Well, sure. And Including yeah, the military. Sure. The military supported him. The rank and file and, and the and the lower grade officer ranks supported Chavez overwhelmingly. So yes. so there was there were outliers, maybe some generals, maybe some a few higher level people who were against him. But the great majority in the military supported Chavez and that would popular support saved him and in two days he was back, literally resurrected from the dead and they had a chance to kill him and get rid of him, but they didn't and he came back. And that was in April two thousand two and the same same thing may be percolating all over again. Yeah, it would seem so. And one wonders when, at, at some point, finally, the world will have its the world will have its counter McCarthy moment when we are confronted at last. Senator, do you do you have no shame? We went over on time. I just want to end with one comment. Obama sure. has been asking Congress for a new AUMF authorization for the use of military force, the one that Bush got back in 2001 or two, forget the exact date. And he wants that the pretext is to fight ISIS or the Islamic State. But, it, but, but I think it's really much more than that. I think what he wants is unrestricted, unconstrained power to wage wars at his discretion. And the Congress cannot 
declare war. The only power to declare war is the is the UN Security Council. If Congress declares it without Security Council approval, it's naked aggression. So so Congress has no power to do it. Presidents have no power to do it. U.S. courts have no power to do it. Only the Security Council has power to do it. But that doesn't make any difference. Congress wants. I mean, Obama wants funding as well as authorization to wage these wars. And again, the real target is Russia. More funding to wage war against anybody in Syria, in Iraq, in Ukraine, uh, heading toward a war with Russia. This is this is what we're heading toward right now. And again, we could be on the cusp at some point of a nuclear war. Heaven help us, Matt. War is peace. Remember that, Stephen. <laughs> oh, indeed. The, the music says. As Orwell we, told us, war is peace. War is peace, indeed. The music says we are out of time, Matt. I look forward to getting you back for more at a more friendly time for you, but I really appreciate you coming on today. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Matt.